I hope you... I hope you were able to see the beautiful train that we have out in our foyer. And this is a true story that happened this past week. We were so impressed with the detail that was taking place that our intern, and uh, her name is Erin, and Erin went out and she's like, oh, the detail is so real, even the mouse looks real. And she got closer to the train only to realize it was a real mouse and it moved and it had her absolutely scream. Pastor Rick comes out and he's a good farm boy, picks it up by its tail and brings it into the great unknown outside as well. But Aaron, I don't think, has walked through our foyer since. So if you see her today, be gracious to her. She needs our prayers and support. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family and thank you for the book of Peter. It's been some challenging messages we've heard and today might be one of the most challenging of all. And so God, I pray that my words would fall down that your words would be lifted up and by the power of your Holy Spirit speak to every one of us who's listening on site, online, or however they might be listening to the word. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're about 15 months into COVID and we hope that the end is near. So as you think about what has taken place over the last year and a bit, what has been one or two of the biggest takeaways. If you're watching online, we'd invite you to hop onto the church online platform and to share some of those thoughts. What are some of the biggest takeaways from the last year? I uh, read a half dozen articles this past week to see what people were saying. And here are the couple that stood out to me or were repeated regularly. One of them was a value in slowing down. You know, we drop off our kids at school and then we go to work and then we take our kids from school to swimming lessons. Then we come home and we grab some takeout food along the way. We take our other daughter, we take her to dance lessons and we come home and we try to answer all the family texts that have been happening and the emails that took place that we need to respond to by nine o'clock. And now we have a chance to breathe. Have we used this time to slow down and to slow down well? What about the importance of an emergency fund? If you listen to Dave Ramsey or you talk to your financial planner, they might say regularly, do you have two to three months saved up in case there's a rainy day? And I don't know about you, but I know my wife and I needed to make use of our emergency fund. Do we have that set aside in case something were to happen at work or you're able to keep your job, but things slow down dramatically? It's also taught us that we can work anywhere. I read an article a few months ago and it talked about how if you would have talked to Fortune 500 companies and said how long before you can be fully online, they would have said, oh, approximately 18 months, give or take. Most of those companies were able to make the turnaround in two to three weeks. But that's created another challenge, the impact of loneliness that's taken place on mental health. About a month ago, CTV News put out a tweet that said over the past year, um, child suicide rates for elementary and junior and senior high has gone up 100%. The children's helpline has gone up 250% of kids making calls going, we don't know how to handle this. Which leads to the last one that was probably said more often than anything else, the importance of self-care. What are we doing in the midst of a pandemic to care for ourselves? Is it getting a little bit of exercise, going on a walk, a bike ride, starting up a home gym? Are you maybe starting some projects around the house, getting a great book, finding an excellent show on Netflix that you just love doing? For myself, the biggest takeaway over this past year has been this. When reality doesn't meet expectations, we can fill that gap with bitterness or with grace. When reality doesn't meet our expectations, we can fill that gap with bitterness or with grace. 
And this goes well beyond the pandemic as well. My wife and I, pre-COVID, would try to go on a date. Realistically, we'd get out every two to three months, and we would have the worst luck on date night. I would take her out, and we'd have this great plan, and it would be special because as much as we love our three little munchkins, a grandparent would probably be taking them. And then we'd arrive at the restaurant, and they'd say, oh, we're sorry, we've lost your reservation. Or we'd sit down, and date night means I get to eat steak. And I would order a steak, and I'd be excited about it, and I'd even give them plenty of wiggle room. Anything between medium rare and medium is great. And it's like the server looked at me and said, that's not a classy man. Let's burn his steak, and he won't even notice. And you can ask my wife after the service. Half the time we go out, my food comes out wrong. But even if everything worked out, and the service is good, and the conversation is good, we were bound to get a text from our babysitter that says something like, is it normal for your boys to pee in the backyard? I may or may not be making that up. The point is, our expectations rarely meet up with reality. And whether it's a worldwide pandemic, whether it's a date with your significant other, or whatever the case might be, how are we responding? I've learned an awful lot from Pastor Mel over the last four and a half years, and whether it was the first thing he taught me or it was just really early on and therefore it stood out, he said to me, Dave, define the expectations. You're putting together a meeting, there's a project going on, whatever the case might be, tell people what to expect. Make sure you define the expectations. What do you hope to accomplish? What do you want for the people to do? And most importantly, how long is it going to be? And I think it's a big part of this life together, whether we're talking about COVID or relationships or work or school or whatever it might be, if we don't define the expectations, we get frustrated. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can take out your smartphone and download the app. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. 1 Peter is tucked away at the end of the New Testament, at the end of the Bible. One of the main ideas that Peter is trying to get across in this entire book of 1 Peter is hope in the midst of suffering. In five chapters, it's almost perfectly divided into thirds. We have this idea of the reminder of the great salvation that you have, what it means to live as resident aliens in a hostile world. And right now, in 1 Peter 4 verse 12, how are we going to suffer well? For those of you who enjoy taking notes, that's the first idea this morning. Expect to suffer. I'm just full news of rainbows and butterflies this morning, hey? Wow, I can't wait to talk about this more. But it hits all of us. For those of you who enjoy studying and learning more about the scriptures, this passage is absolutely about suffering for our faith in Jesus, and we are totally going to talk about that. But at times I'm going to spread beyond that as well and talk about suffering in general because it affects all of us. A little over a week ago, I was talking to somebody in the foyer, and he said to me, Dave, what are people saying about this sermon series? And I knew he wanted to share his own thoughts, but I said, you know, for the most part, it's been pretty positive. There's been some really difficult sermons, but what are you hearing or what's going through your mind? And he looked at me and he kind of went, ah, like he didn't really want to share or hurt my feelings. He goes, Dave, this book of 1 Peter is so countercultural. It's completely different than what we're accustomed to talking about. And whether you're watching online and you're thinking, I'm not sure what Christianity is all about, 
Or maybe you're in the room thinking the exact same thing. Whether you're a longtime Christian or you're just starting your journey of faith, it's blunt. It's right in your face. Expect to suffer, but does it actually surprise us at all? I think many of us suffer and we just don't know what to do with it. And Peter is saying, let me tell you. This is verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. My beloved, those of you who I love, those of you I value greatly, those of you in this journey of faith with me, I have news for you. Fiery trials are coming. Is it blunt? Yes. Is it true? Absolutely. Suffering affects everybody. Think about relationships. I'm going to say something I rarely do and make an absolute statement. Every one of us in this room has suffered in a relationship, have we not? We've had a crush on a significant other only to have them break our hearts when they say they're not interested. We've been in a dating or marriage relationship and it's fallen apart and it's broken our hearts. We have a loved one, a parent, a grandparent, a really close friend, and they move away or they pass away and your heart is absolutely broken. You watch your kids and they grow up right in front of your eyes. And you see some of the decisions they make and you go, oh, that's not going to work out well. You see their relationships struggle or fall apart. And you're broken inside. Suffering is a part of life. The silversmith was asked, how many times do you dip your silver into the fiery pot before you know it's ready? And he says, I take the silver and I dip it into fire to wipe away the dross and to wipe away all the inadequacies. And I pull it out and I dip it in and I pull it out until I can see my face reflected in the silver. We go through the fire not to be destroyed, but to be purified. You go through this fire time and time again so God might look at you and see his face. You go through the fire and the trials and the sufferings so that we might better reflect Jesus to a broken world. And yes, this is absolutely countercultural. If you're in this room and you're over the age of 30, do you remember Friday nights and going to Blockbuster Video or your favorite video rental place? And you'd go in and you'd probably spend a solid hour picking out the perfect movie for family night. We don't need to do that anymore. We have streaming services that send it right into our homes. So now we can waste an evening from our couch figuring out which video we want to watch. You want to treat your family to some food. It used to be that you would go and you'd pick the food up and you'd bring it home. You don't have to do that anymore. Skip the dishes, DoorDash, Uber Eats. They'll bring it right to your house. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were watching our oldest son play soccer and everybody was talking about what was going on in their lives. And somehow they got onto the topic of house cleaners. I think we were the only couple who didn't have a regular person come and clean their house. Why do anything yourself if you can just pay somebody to do it for you? Most of us listening aren't even, didn't even have to drive to church this morning. We just hopped online, turned on our smart TV, turned on our laptop, and boom, there it is. And then Peter says, don't be surprised. Fiery trials are coming your way. 
And we've talked a little bit about suffering in general, but again, this passage is specifically about suffering as a Christian. Most of us don't have to worry about being persecuted to the point of death for our faith. So what does that look like in Edmonton in 2021? Maybe the only job you can find is morally ambiguous. And your coworkers say, oh, don't actually write how many hours you actually work on your time card. Just write down what the rest of us are writing down. If you don't, it's going to look bad on all of us. Or your boss pulls you aside and says, look, for the presentation that you have coming up, for that contract that you have that you're going to do, let's make sure that we put in lesser than allowed quality materials. That way our margins will be better and we'll all get a bonus at the end of it. Perhaps the biggest firestorm is the sexual ethic right now. In the middle of Pride Month with rainbow flags flying everywhere, how do we share the incredible love, the acceptance of Jesus Christ for everybody who calls on his name without saying, I affirm what you believe? How will that impact our friendships, how people view us and our standing in society? What does it look like to act like a Christian in an increasingly post-Christian world? A couple of years ago, one of my friends was saying to me that she was at an ultrasound appointment and the ultrasound technician uh, said to her, I have, I have some really unfortunate news. The, the baby in your tummy um, has a disability. And so now we need to talk about how you're going to have that baby aborted. The woman looked at the ultrasound tech and said, uh, I'm not aborting that baby The tech said, okay, well, I'm going to have to get my manager in, and then we're going to talk to you again. And so without the husband in the room, the ultrasound tech and her manager came in, and they laid it on her pretty heavy. Do you realize what this is going to do to your family? Do you realize the hurt and the pain it's going to cause for the next number of years, probably decades? Do you realize the drain on society that your baby is going to be? How... How are we going to live as Christians in a post-Christian world? How are we going to respond to this and many more? Well, we have the resilience to not only stand firm in our faith, but to share the incredible news of Jesus and the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 1, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the good news of the power of God of salvation for all who believe. My friends, difficulty is coming. We need to be resilient and to expect that sufferings are going to take place. In fact, says Peter, we should expect, not only expect that we're going to suffer, but we should rejoice in our sufferings. And it sounds like something, a point I'd almost make up, but yet it's almost taken word from word from our text. Look at verses 13 and 14. Rejoice, says Peter, in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, let's be clear. Peter is not a masochist. He is not saying to rejoice because we're suffering. He's not saying if a loved one passes away, we should throw this big celebratory party. He expects that we're going to mourn. He expects that we are trying to figure out how do we live in the midst of this suffering, but what is the suffering teaching you? Well, certainly not a story of me suffering for Jesus. Something happened to me pretty recently that was a big blow. For those of you who tuned into the AGM last week, I gave a brief description, but here's the full story. 
Every day before I leave the office and go home, I call my wife and I say, hey, do you need me to pick anything up on my way home? I expect bananas, milk, some hamburger buns, whatever the case might be. And she says to me a phrase she's never said before. And she goes, Dave, prepare your heart. And I'm thinking, what is this 90s Bible camp? Like, who says that? Prepare your heart. And I said, Jenna, what happened? And she goes, "Uh, just pray on the way home. And I'm thinking, this ain't going to be good. It's about 10 minute drive from the church to my house. And so I'm praying, God, I don't know what happened, but apparently I need to prepare my heart. And I walk in and my seven-year-old says, Daddy, I broke my glasses. I was like, oh, that's not that bad. I don't know, 50 bucks or whatever. We bought them off of Zenny Optical or one of those online uh, optic places. And Jenna goes, uh, that's not the bad news. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot. What happened? I have three kids at home, seven, five, and three. They make a lot of noise. It was dead silent. So Jenna says, follow me. And we go upstairs. And it turns out my three-year-old daughter is quite an athlete. It also turns out she was not impressed with whatever was on Netflix. And she took the TV remote and threw it through the TV screen. My curved 4K smart TV screen. And the kids are watching. How is dad going to respond? Not well, not well. And so I said, kids, leave daddy alone. I went into my bedroom. I put my head in my hands and I said, God, what? Two things. One, your daughter's way more important than a TV. True. Second, Dave, everything you have comes from me. Everything we have comes from God. Our job comes from God. Our ability to do that job comes from God. Our finances come from God. Everything comes from God. Now, I didn't suffer for Jesus, but my suffering pointed me to Jesus. Think of a gardener that's pruning back that bush. From an untrained eye, we might look at that and say, he's wrecking it. Why is he destroying that bush? But he's cutting aside everything that is dead, everything that is not bearing fruit, everything that is preventing that bush from growing and flourishing. Have you been insulted for your faith? Be reminded and encouraged. You are a child of God. Have you experienced pain and loss because of Jesus? You have received, says Peter, the Holy Spirit and future glory. Have your friends abandoned you because of your faith? You have an everlasting family that you will spend the rest of eternity with. Have you had relational difficulty? Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Have you experienced financial hardship? Jesus promises wealth unheard of. In 1555, there was widespread persecution of Christians in England, many of whom were burned at the stake for their faith. One of them, Hugh Latimer, said to his friend Nicholas Ridley, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. Today, by God's grace, we will light a candle that will never burn out. For the parents in the room, you know there is no way you can offer your children discipline without them, at least at times, saying, Mom, Dad, I hate you. And it hurts, and it breaks your heart, but the discipline is good for them, and it prepares them to be better citizens. 
It's the same when God brings suffering into our lives. Do we like it? Probably not. Is it good for us? Absolutely. My friends, be resilient. Rejoice in your sufferings. Let's switch gears a bit and start talking a little bit about application. The third part today is evaluate the cause of your sufferings. This is verses 15 to 18. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Do you know anybody who has kind of that victim mentality? They're always the victim, whatever takes place. And you're talking to your friend and they say, oh my goodness, I got a traffic ticket. You say, well, what happened? He said, oh, well, I was driving and the stupid cop gave me a stupid ticket because I was driving too stupid fast in the speed zone. Well, Were you speeding? Yeah. But then you wouldn't guess what else happened. My wife got mad at me because I didn't pick up my daughter from school. Did did you say that you were going to pick up your daughter from school? Well, yeah. You know what this is? It's a spiritual attack. That's what this is. And you're reminded, no, no, no. You broke the law, then you broke your word. There's just going to be some consequences to that. Shifting gears a little bit. Two friends, both Christians, both mechanics. The one friend, true story, the one friend says to his friend, "Um, I'm getting persecuted for my faith at work. My friend, the mechanic, says, well, what do you mean? Talk to me about that. And he goes, well, I've lost my job at least a couple times because I'm a Christian. My friend looks at him and says, well, what's it say on the termination papers? And it says, well, that I'm lying on my time cards and I'm not doing the work that I need to do. My friend actually knew what was going on behind the scenes. They were in the same industry. And he said, are you telling me the whole truth? And he's like, well, well, so here's what's happening. I'm a mechanic, and I want to share the good news of Jesus. And so when I'm at work, I'm talking to my other friends, my other mechanics who are in their bay working on their car, their vehicle, and I'm telling them about Jesus. And my friend says, yeah, but when you're at work, don't you get paid to work? And he goes, well, well, yeah. And my friend says, but then you're not getting persecuted. You need to understand what it is you're doing and why that's impacting what's taking place. And so the apostle Peter here is saying, do we understand why people are upset at us and what's taking place? And are we evaluating what's going on? If you're at a neighborhood barbecue and after talking about family and friends and work and hobbies and sports and everything that you do. And then you just kind of slide it into the conversation. Oh yeah, this past weekend, my kids graduated from the youth group at church. They held a great celebration and Sunday service was special. I really enjoyed it. And in the middle of this barbecue, they stonewall you and say, you know what? We don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics here. If your boss calls you into her office on a Thursday afternoon and says, hey, Last night, when we all went out for wings, you invited a couple people to Alpha. We don't do that here. And if you don't shape up, you're going to ship out. That's a different ballgame. We're talking about the gospel on our own behalf, on our own time. 
trying to lead people to Jesus and showing them how great and how awesome he is. But Peter is saying, will you still evaluate what's going on? There's always something to learn. Do I need to build up a little bit more relational equity with my neighbors before I start talking about my faith? Could I have phrased the invitation for Alpha a little bit differently and maybe that would have changed things? Was the problem that there was 10 people around that table and it would be better if I just invited two? Was my tone a little bit too judgmental? When I was in high school, I started taking sharing my faith pretty seriously. I was in grade 11, grade 12, I don't remember, and I was hanging out with my one buddy, Chris, and we were shooting hoops in his driveway. We're taking shots, we're getting the rebound, and I said, you know, Chris, if you uh, don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. He grabs the rebound, throws it at my head, and boom. How are we sharing our faith? Why are we being persecuted in Edmonton in 2021 for what's taking place? What can we evaluate and learn from the situation? And how could we be more effective in the future? Even if our suffering has nothing to do with faith, like a worldwide pandemic, there's still much to be gained by evaluating and seeing what we can learn. Expect to suffer, rejoice in our sufferings, evaluate the cause of our sufferings, and entrust our sufferings to God. This is the last verse of chapter four. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you enjoy following along word for word, I preach from the English Standard Version, and it uses the word entrust. Different translations that you might be looking at might have the word commit. And this idea is one for making a deposit. In the first century, they didn't have the modern banking system that we have today. And so when you went to go away to visit family or you were to take your um, family to some sort of vacation type of place and do some things, you wouldn't travel with all your money, nor would you leave it behind because people knew that you had left your home away. And so you would take the bulk of your money and you would entrust it. You would commit it to a good friend knowing that they would take care of that money for you. In the midst of our suffering, the Apostle Peter is saying, entrust yourself to God. Commit yourself to God because he will keep you till the end. The answer to our suffering is not to love things less, but to love God more than anything else recognizing that he has our best in mind. Most of us listening today probably don't enjoy suffering, but it's a part of our lives. There's suffering in relationships, suffering through our health, suffering that takes place at work. Suffering is a part of life. What if we viewed suffering a little bit like going for surgery? Can you imagine going in for surgery and the surgeon is there and you're just squirming back and forth. You're not put under any anesthetic. It would be a disaster. There's a reason hospitals put you to sleep. Most of us aren't going to surgery because we have nothing else going on that weekend. That sounds like something fun to do, but we're going there for a reason. We need a tumor removed. We know we need our knee scoped out so we can walk better or our shoulder fixed so we can go back to work. God is the divine surgeon who knows exactly what we need. The surgery is going to be painful. There will be suffering and there's going to be rehab, but we entrust ourselves to him, knowing that on the other side, we're going to be better for it. 
And one of the beautiful aspects of Christianity is that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he isn't willing to do himself. We have a God who suffers, and to the best of my knowledge, we're the only religion that has that. Even our closest cousin in the Jews don't have a suffering God. But at the beginning of the New Testament, when God takes his son, his one and only son, and sends him to earth on a rescue mission, Jesus knows he has to suffer. When you look at his closest relationships, we see that his dad died sometimes in his teenager or in his 20s. His closest friends, these 12 disciples who he spent every single day with for three years, betray him and abandon him on the night he is betrayed. As for financial security, he never owned a home and has relied on the grace of his heavenly father to find a place to lay his head. Leaders of the church make his life miserable and ultimately put him on a cross. Of course, there's the ultimate physical suffering in which Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world when he's nailed to that cross. We can expect to suffer because Jesus suffered first. We can rejoice in our sufferings for Christ because as we engage in sufferings for Jesus, we know that we also engage in the glory of Jesus and we'll see something incredible on the other side. We can evaluate our sufferings because we're reminded that makes us more like Jesus and we can entrust our sufferings to God because we know he is faithful and will never let us go. This message of 1 Peter is a message of hope in the midst of suffering. Yeah, it's completely countercultural. But it's also a reminder of how much God loves us to help us to become more and more like Him and to put our focus on Him completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 1 Peter. Some of these teachings, some of these passages are definitely hard to swallow. But if we're being honest with ourselves, who in this room? hasn't suffered at some point. And we are reminded that we walk with you and you walk with us in the midst of our pain and suffering. So God, forgive us when we run away, when things get tough. By the power of your spirit, help us to engage you more fully, to depend on strong Christian friendships as well. That through your power and through the friendship of loved ones, we might recognize the value and the beauty of suffering for Jesus. We pray this in your holy name, amen.